0: All right. Take your Bibles. Go to, to Ruth chapter one. <clears throat> Sorry, chapter one. Oh, that was that was a good start. It's a strong start. So, uh, have you uh, met some people today? Do you have an opportunity to get real names? Um, that's good. I went and introduced myself as Christine at one moment, so that was a little awkward. That's not good. Um, uh, this this is an opportunity. Let me let me just kind of lay this out here. Names are really important, right? And and I know I make light of it a lot just because I'm so terrible at names. And sometimes I make fun of it simply to take some of the pressure off. The reality is there's nothing more important than being able to remember somebody's name. And so I'm committed publicly, again, I want to know names. I I don't want to be like, hey, you, uh, buddy, good to see you. So um, names are really important because names carry a a level of meaning. Names carry story. Um, In our story today, in Ruth, names are really important. Um, And I'll give you all the names up front, and then we'll kind of refer to them as we're walking the story, right? So so you've got the name of a place, Bethlehem. Bethlehem is, uh, the name literally means the house of bread. You've got the name of the husband, the daddy, Elimelech. His name means God is king. Then you've got Naomi, who's going to be a focus today. Naomi's name means lovely, or sweetness, or sweetie pie. Ruth. Ruth means companion or friend. Then you get <laughs> then you get some weird names, okay? Just gotta call it. You got Orpah. Orpa's name means neck. We'll talk about that a little bit too. Then you got the boys, Chilion and Malon. Malon means sickly. Chilion means dying. So you know this new craze of naming kids like the weirdest thing you can come up with? So, this would be like naming your first child pneumonia and your second child leukemia. Like, These are my boys. I mean, that's a little, little weird, a little strange, but those names are in here, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about them. So, Ruth chapter 1, I got a lot of work to do in a very short amount of time, so just kind of hang in there, and, and hopefully I, I don't lose you in the process. Chapter 1, starting in verse 1, I'll read the first two verses, then we'll talk for a minute about some context. Chapter 1, verse 1. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab, and they settled there. So historical context, just to kind of wrap this up for you. So, So this is happening during the time of Judges, okay? The, the time of the Judges is the time in history between the death of Joshua and the ascension of King Saul to the throne, to being the, the first king. So in that time period in between, that's what it's talking about. And if you remember correctly, the time period in between, the time period of the Judges, has this cycle of rebellion that just continues to repeat itself. And let me just kind of walk through it, okay? So, so the people of Israel sin, they rebel against God. God brings consequences in the form of an oppressor and brings dark days. The people, in a response to those dark days and oppression, repent and they call out and cry out to God for help. God sends along a judge, a superhero, who steps in and saves the day. Then the people with that superhero, superhero get to experience the very goodness of God until they forget God. And when they forget God, they sin, and they rebel against God, and God allows an oppressor to come in to bring dark circumstances. And then the people, because of the oppression, are like, Lord, we're, we're sorry, forgive us. And God brings in a, a, a judge, a superhero who delivers the people, and they get to experience the goodness of God. Until they And it just happens over and over again, and at the core, at the very foundation of that process, that cycle that happened, you you just need to look to the left in your Bible by one verse. It's the very last verse of the book of Judges. Judges chapter 21, verse 25 says this, and there was no king in those days in Israel, but everybody did whatever seemed right to him. If you're a teacher, I would challenge you to use that teaching philosophy this week in your classroom. Y'all just do whatever seems right. Parents, go ahead. And in about 10 years, we'll talk about what that turned out to be like. I mean, this philosophy that everybody doing what's right in their own eyes, that, that, <laughs> that's our culture today. And then, yeah, same thing as first service. I got a lot of verbal agreement with that, and I am not chasing that rabbit right now, so I'm going to move on. Um, so all these things are happening. There's a famine in the land. So you probably did the same thing I did because that's the way I read it. There's a famine in the land, whatever. That's a significant deal. Our, our Western 21st century, um, very uh, well cared for individuals that we are, we read the word famine and our mind doesn't go to what it is. This is a disastrous state. This is an active tragedy. It didn't just happen, it's active. Actually, the way the Hebrew is used here, it is an active uh, um, movement of the famine. It literally says that the famine stalked the land. It was finding places to do its famine stuff, right? And, and I, know, I know, this isn't asking, so, so when you ask, <laughs> I get the same answer from my wife every time. What's for dinner? And what do you think her answer is? Food. Every time. It's like, babe, it's been 27 years. Can't you give me a different answer? And she says, it's been 27 years. Can't you stop asking the question? <laughs> like Cool. That's fair. I'll give you that one. Food. We'll go with food. Here's the problem with famine. It's not what's for dinner. It's when will we eat again? We're worse as a parent. Which which one of my kids will eat today? This is happening in Bethlehem, the house of bread. And it has no bread. You've seen pictures of famine when it settles into a land, right? there's no rain the drought just takes over the land the ground begins to crack from being parched and that the sun just beats down relentlessly on the on the dusty fields and and if there's anything alive in the in the fields it really is it's, it's this brown and crunchy weed that has found some way to live in the one of the cracks that has developed in in the parched ground And as afternoon comes, the hot winds blow across this already parched ground and kicks up all of this dust. And and everywhere you look, people are are scavenging for food because the food is completely gone. And in this moment, a man has to look at his wife and his two boys and make a really hard decision. I think we need to go. It's hard, isn't it? Have you ever had to move your family? I mean, I, your kids don't want to go, your, your spouse is comfortable where they are, they en- you enjoy your neighbors, your family, but, but you know that you've got to move, and there's, there's huge difficulty with that. And he's going to move to Moab, about 50 miles away from Bethlehem, which is a, a pagan nation, has a really complex relationship with Israel, a, a vitriolic relationship between Moab and, and Israel. But in Elimelech's thinking, in dad's thinking, in and, and Naomi's husband's thinking, it's not, so do we get along with them? It's, they have food, right? So we're going. So, so look at verse three with me. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. She was left with her two sons. Her sons then took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, the second was named Ruth, and after they lived in Moab for about 10 years, both Malon and Chilion also died. And the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. So, so now she has been moved 50 miles from home into a strange land. And now while she is there, the unthinkable happens and her husband dies. And now, and now this whole family, mom, wife, and, and, and the, two, the two boys, they're now living in this this foreign culture without their chief protector. They're navigating the language differences, the cultural differences. She's dealing with the homesickness of wanting to be back home, even, without him. I mean, this is bad, but it gets worse. They stay in Moab, and the boys uh, reach the age where it's time for them to go out and and take a wife, and so they bring the one home to meet mom. I don't know how many of you have experienced that moment where it's like, okay, here comes this one and mama needs to meet this one. So, so what is it that mom is looking for in this one who's going to marry her precious little son? I mean, we have a lot of secondary things we think about, right? I mean, is, 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 she, is she funny? Uh, does she eat? Uh, can she lift more than 50 pounds? Um, what, 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 what football team does she cheer for? I mean, these things are really important, right? but there's one primary one. Does she love God? And as, as Mailon and Chilion bring their gals home to meet mom, <laughs> first of all, sorry, I can't imagine Chilion showing up and be like, hey mom, why don't you meet my gal? Her name is Neck. I mean, that's kind of what I have in my head. <laughs> These girls don't like score low uh, on mama's scale. These girls don't even hit zero on mama's scale. Because these girls are Moabites who worship the false god, Kamash, an idol whose worship includes child sacrifice. So mom, your son brings home a girl he'd like to marry and you're thinking, okay, maybe we get some grandbabies. And the first thing you realize is Part of her worship is sacrificing those babies to this false god. This is the worst possible scenario for Naomi. And she's powerless to do anything about it. She's lost her husband. Her boys are marrying idolaters. And it gets worse. Because within 10 years, both of her sons, Malon and Chilion, die. How hard is this? So in a relatively short amount of time, Naomi has moved from everything that she has found familiar to a a strange, foreign, idolatrous land. She's had to bury her husband in this foreign land. She's seen her, her baby boys grow old enough to get married and then to see them choose idolatrous women and then have to bury her own sons. I mean, beyond the emotional toll, which is easy for me to say, because if you're experiencing that in your life, that is a level of devastation that I don't know that you necessarily get beyond, right? But beyond that emotional toll, being a widow in that foreign land, that's a nightmare. That, that's a disaster. She has lost Everything and, and in that culture, she needs to have some sort of male connection, whether it be husband or her sons. And without that male connection, there is no place in society for her, there is no income for her. She's thrown on the mercy of a culture that has little interest in her, and that's where Naomi's living. Verse 6. She and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard while in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. So there they are in Moab, and they're like, we're going home because we just heard the Lord has paid attention to his people. So, So the Lord has broken the famine that word for paid attention or broken the famine is used in military context to talk about to assemble the troops, to to call to arms. This is this is God saying, okay, here we go. Now we're gonna deal with this. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna undo this. And so what rises in this text is a tension. It's a tension that you and I deal with every day. It's a tension that if you're honest with, you can't possibly solve. And you've got to figure out how to live with that tension. And it's this tension. God is not just the one who broke the famine. God is the one who brought the famine. The tension exists between these two characteristics of God. The very first one is God is sovereign. He is highest authority. He rules and reigns over everything. Even, and this is not condoning it in any way, shape, or form, but the last verse in Proverbs 16, it says that even when somebody throws dice, whatever number comes up, God was in that. So so God is even over the insignificant things, even the lottery numbers. Don't go play the lottery. I did not say that's what you should do. I did not say, hey, Pastor Frank said, God said play the lottery. That is not what I said. Hmm. But that's how in control God is. There is nothing insignificant enough to escape his attention. He rules and reigns over everything. He's over all of creation, every aspect of creation, even the ones we haven't discovered yet, even the ones we don't understand yet. God is sovereign God is good, he is loving, he is patient, he is merciful, he is kind, he is gracious, he is for us. God is in control of everything and God is good and that's where the tension is born. Because if God is good and God is in control, why did he fill in the blank, right? And so people have tried to solve that tension by saying, okay, here's the deal, here's the deal. This is is the way it works. God is sovereign, but he's not good. So God's in control, but he's not good. Not many people land there because that's kind of a, a Greek mythology type approach where those Greek mythological characters were the ones who were completely in control, but they were just evil, insecure, mean, cruel, vindictive, and they would just operate with full authority but no goodness. Not a lot of people land there. Where most people land in this tension between the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God is most people will land in this place where they'll say, God is good, but he's not sovereign. That's called open theism. So God loves you, and he means well. And when bad things or difficult things happen in your life, he shares in your tears, but he is just as surprised as you are. That's false teaching. God isn't surprised by anything. God isn't impotent. God isn't puny. God is a rock. God is always in control, and yet bad things still happen. So how in the world do you put these things together and remove the tension? You don't. Deuteronomy 29 is, a fanta- 29, 29 is my favorite verse. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. That's oh, a cop out. No, it's not. That is my declaration of faith and hope. I don't need to understand everything. He understands everything. It, it, it's talking as what we did in Habakkuk, right? Habakkuk chapter 3. Even though everything falls apart, even though everything Uh, just, just fails. Even though the economy is in complete disaster, yet I will trust in my Lord. It's living in that yet, even though difficult things happen. It means believing him in the darkness, knowing that there is a tension between the pain you are experiencing and the promise that God has given to you. Does that sound familiar to anybody in the last few months? That is the very definition of why we speak the language of lament to the ears of our God. God, you have promised me these good and wonderful and right things. But this is what I'm experiencing right now. So, so I'm living in this in-between, and I desperately want this, what you've promised to me. I don't want this. Why is this here? And that's what we're going to find in the book of Ruth, is living in that yet. It's struggling with that difficulty. I really need to move, so just bear with me. The trio packs up. So now you've got Naomi, you've got Ruth, and you've got Neck. <laughs> and they're heading towards Bethlehem. In verse 8. Naomi says to them, now each of you go back to your mom's house. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead, talking about her sons, and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. They said to her, no, we insist on returning with you to your people. Naomi is is being as kind as she can be to these young ladies. She doesn't want them to go to a foreign land like she has had to experience. She wants them to return home, go back to her gods, Find a new husband. And so she, she throw this, throws this out and says they're on the side of the road. And you can almost picture this in your mind. These three women walking and Naomi just stopping and be like, listen, you just need to go home. <laughs> you can't do this. <laughs> and they follow each other and they're hugging and they're crying and they're snot flying. All kinds of stuff happening. Those real emotional moments. <laughs> all right, you still with me? That's good. We'll keep moving. Verse 11. Naomi replies to them, no, go home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? No, go home, my daughters. Go on. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought I was ho- there was to hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourself from marrying? No, my daughters. My life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. She sneaks in the idea of the Leverite marriage, which means when a, a woman loses her husband and is a widow, uh, many of the traditions were that uh, a close relative would then come and marry the widow to continue the, the n- family name, to continue the, the family line. And she's like, girls, I, I don't have any more sons for you to marry. And, and, and I, I'm not married. So, okay, let's just say I, I get married tonight and have boys tonight. Are you going to wait all those years till you can marry them? No, that would be foolish. Don't waste your time. Don't stay with me. This is hopeless for you. Why? Because God has turned his hand against me. She says, girls, this isn't bad luck. This is God himself. This is his doing. Verse 14, again, they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone home. So we get the picture there. This time through, Orpah's like, fine, I'm going to go home. So Orpah returns home. Look, Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, to her gods. You should follow your sister-in-law. But then Ruth says this, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. Ruth says, listen, I'm not going. I'm with you. I'm all in. What do you think it was that that drove Ruth to, to be so committed to Naomi? I can tell you what it's not, and we'll see it again in a couple of verses. It's certainly not Naomi's sweet spirit. I mean, right here, Naomi just put God on full blast and blamed him for everything that was happening in her life. Naomi paints the picture as dark as she possibly can, and Ruth reaches out, grabs her hand, and walks right into the darkness with her. That's commitment. That's love. That's Ruth saying, "Our bond is stronger than our circumstances. You're not getting rid of me." We we laughed on staff meeting this week at verse eighteen. Verse 18, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. <laughs> which is hilarious, Naomi's like, go home! Ruth's like, no, go home, no, go home, no! <sighs> you gotta walk 50 miles. <sighs> and they don't talk! Which has gotta be one of the most awkward walks ever. right? Then you get to verse 19, they come into the city, the two of them traveled till they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? hear the whispers, okay when they talk about excitement in this text they're not talking about yay, this is amazing, no no, no, this is this is the whisper corner of Bethlehem this is the they're over here spilling the tea, if you will, and they look and they're like, well, who can that be Naomi <gasps> is is that lovely now don't look at it this way like I can't believe it Naomi's back, not like that, more like the the book of Job describes after Job has lost everything, and his three friends come to comfort him, and they're approaching him from a distance. Look at the end of that verse that's up there. When they looked at Job from a distance, they could barely recognize him. Why? Because grief, and mourning, and trials, and depression, and discouragement, they all bring a physical expression. They take a toll on your body. And I believe in this moment as Naomi enters Bethlehem and they're surprised that she's there, they're whispering, "Is like, that's what happened to her hair? No makeup? I mean, this is not lovely like we remember lovely being. Sweetie Pie's looking a little rugged. And, and sorry, you have to excuse me, but I have to do a voice for verse 20. Because Naomi overhears them and she says this. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. (laughs) Don't call me sweetness. Don't call me sweetie pie. Don't call me lovely. The Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full. but The Lord brought me back empty. Why would you call me Naomi, why would you call me lovely since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? You don't call me lovely. You call me bitter. And God is the reason that I'm bitter. I I went away and everything was great. Everything was whole. Everything was complete. And now, here I stand in front of you and I have nothing. I'm empty. And it's all his fault. You're standing next to Naomi as she's making these accusations against God. It might be wise to do one of these numbers just to get out of the way in case lightning comes. I mean, come on, Frank, that, that, that's inappropriate. You can't talk like that to God. You can think that, but you can't talk like that to God. Uh, no. No, you, here, let me, let me say it this way. Take off your church mask take off your church mask. We talked about this when we went through the lament series. Take off your church mask. I don't wear a church mask. Yes, you do. It was like my dad used to answer the phone when we were growing up. We could be arguing like there's nobody's, just World War III in the house and he'd be cussing at us and screaming at us and yes, but dad did do those things and the phone would ring and be like, yeah, 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 yeah. Hello? That's the same way we act with our church masks. I'm here. Everything's great. Stop it. Who are you fooling? You're not fooling us. You're not fooling him. He knows exactly how difficult things are. Do you think he's allowing difficult things in your life so you can be like, I'm great. No, he's doing it. So you will be like, God, I need you. Yeah, there you go. Now I got you. If you put on this stoic look and this thick skin, you miss the opportunity to be growing and engaging God in a real way when he pursues you through pain. Take off your church mask i a game. I, I tell you what, man, I, I, obviously, I love this. I love this book. I love God's word. But one of the reasons I love it so much is because there is not a single piece of literature that exists in history that is more honest and realistic about the harshness that life can bring. It never says that faith or church attendance or church membership or tithing or Bible study or or just being a really good person. It never says any of those things can keep you from difficulty. And here's Naomi returning home. Staring down this long tunnel. And it's dark. And there's absolutely no light at the end of it. And she says, "God shut me down. God made me empty. It hurts and I'm angry." because he took everything I have and now all I have is Hmm. do you think maybe sometimes God allows difficulties in our life so we'll get to that point and we'll realize the truth that no matter how many great things we have in our life, no matter how many things we celebrate in our life, no matter how, how many gifts God has given us in our life, in reality there's only one thing that matters and it's that we have him You get to verse 22, and it's amazing. Naomi comes back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, I know, none of you are reading verse 22 and be like, sweet, I'm gonna commit that one to memory this week. I'm gonna put it on a coffee cup. It is the greatest verse ever. No. It's subtle. But verse 22 is a direct refute of the claim that Naomi just made that she has Nothing. What does Naomi have? First, God broke the famine. God's taken care of Naomi and Ruth. He brought them back to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, which to us, great, barley harvest. Sounds wonderful. No, the barley harvest is the first harvest of the year. It's about a month or two before the wheat harvest. It's also one of the biggest crops in Israel because it became a staple uh, food, particularly for the poor people. And so what God has done is he's brought both Naomi and Ruth back just in time for one of the biggest harvests of the year. He didn't bring them back in the middle of the harvest. He brought them back at the very beginning. And here's the crazy part. If the land is healthy enough for them to start harvesting barley, you know what that means? That's the first harvest. There's a whole mess of them to come still. So Naomi says, I'm empty. And God says, no, I broke the famine. I'm going to provide for you in ways that are going to blow your mind, which we'll see in the next couple of weeks. What does Naomi have? Not just did God break the (laughs) the famine. This part's awesome. Naomi's like, I've got nothing. And poor Ruth's standing here like, what? What about me? She's not totally empty. See, so often in our bitterness... In our resentment, we overlook the everyday necessities that God has given to us. We're in despair for sure, but we overstate our despair, and we overlook the people that God has placed in our life to walk with us through the despair. And in so doing, when we overlook those people, we gut them. We gut those people who have stayed committed to us through thick and thin, and they haven't wavered in their relationship with us, and yet we stand there like, I've got nothing! One thing we used to do with our children, and I I, I need to do this as well, um, is every time they complained, we'd be like, three things. What we were trying to teach them is, every time you complain, there's at least three things you can be grateful for, for that very thing you just complained about. Give us three things you are thankful for. Don't just, no, 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 stop complaining. Give us three things you are thankful for, which we would all do well to do that. kills me not to go to the end of chapter four, but... You would literally miss the Super Bowl if I did that, so I'm not going to do that. So what does Naomi have? God's broken the famine. God has provided her a daughter-in-law who is with her thick and thin. And she's home. Which isn't just any home. They're in Bethlehem. You heard of it, right? Bethlehem? Bethlehem becomes the home of the greatest king Israel would ever see. King David. Bethlehem is the place where the greatest demonstration of God's sovereignty and God's goodness will occur. When one evening there is a manger that is hosting the king of the universe that's holding a baby named Jesus who came to save his people from their sins. Man, obviously in her hurt and it does hurt. She may not see the whole picture. In your hurt and in your difficulty, you're probably not seeing the entire picture. And I want to encourage you the harvest is coming. The harvest is coming. And, and, and sometimes God allows unspeakable tragedy in our lives, sometimes great struggle, sometimes great disappointment. And I don't know why. I can't give you all the answers to that. But I do think that sometimes he does that in order to get our hands off of the things that we're using to replace him. I think what we need to remember is this. God is faithfully loving and providentially caring for his people at all times. I mean, you you can't look at your circumstances to judge if God loves you. You look at your circumstances and you judge your circumstances because God loves you. Everything and anything that God has done in your life has been for a purpose. Whatever it is that God has done just came to mind? <laughs> what hurt or heartache bubbled right to the top right there? Uh, whatever hurt or heartache God has allowed has been because He is getting ready to produce in you this absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. We don't know when and we don't know how. But Paul said because that is true and, and this hurt, although it's heavy and it seems much bigger, it is just a momentary affliction. But it's in our life preparing us for this eternal weight of glory so what we need to do is not focus on what is seen but as what is unseen. Don't waste your disappointment. Evidently my time's up. <laughs> don't waste your disappointment don't waste your difficult times don't don't build a wall around your heart it's hard but there's a harvest coming and anything that God has allowed in your life before that harvest is, is reaped is to prepare you for that harvest can't wait to finish book of ruth cuz man it gets good <laughs> pray me father thanks <sighs> that your word is true that your spirit is with us and that you love us thank you that no matter how confusing or convoluted i might become in my presentation or speech that god your word is very clear There is nothing that is going to happen in our lives outside of your sovereign control. Thank you that no matter what happens in our lives that may hurt, that we may struggle with, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt absolutely 100% that you are good. That, That if we knew what you know, then we would want the same things in our life right now. God, that's hard. So help us get there. Help us to view the things that have happened in our lives the way you would want us to. And to hold on to you, to let go of everything else. Thank you for Jesus Christ. In his precious name I pray. Amen.